Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 146. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we come before you tonight, and we ask that you will be with us in, um, in spirit. Help us to uh, have an appreciation for the material, for the text, for the opportunity to fellowship with one another across the miles. Uh, give us an enlarged capacity to comprehend and to understand and to practically ap- apply the principles and the, the things that we are studying. The um, purpose of studying the Bible is not just for increase of knowledge or even to give us um, kind of that, that sense of spiritual uh, fellowship with one another, although those are good things. I believe that there are some more important um, reasons why we should be studying your word, and that is so that we can um, um, implement its truths into our lives and to um, uh, be a people who have put feet to our faith, who walk out what we believe, uh, so that we're, are, we're changing uh, our behavior, our lives are changed. Um, we are... Um, practicing what we preach uh, so that um, we can be changed and so that the world around us can be changed. And so, Lord, we pray for um, your Holy Spirit that he will um, guide us and direct us and continue to uh, lead us into the paths of Messiah Yeshua um, because uh, it is Yeshua who is the standard that we seek to follow. He is the one that we are modeling our lives after. And so uh, forgive us where we fail one another and um, continue to strengthen us during these times. Uh, Continue to give us hope and to help us to not be fearful even though the pandemic rages on. We trust in you. You are our God, and we are your people. Um, be with us tonight, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. Uh, these are the live internet studies. My name is Tor Teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a congregational member at The Harvest, Kehilatunval in Thornton, Colorado, as you can see on my screen right now. You can find us online at graftedin.com and join us either in person for our services, at least for now or live until um, until such matters change. You know, things change depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, 
You might be going through a second, third, or fourth wave. Who knows? Uh, but uh, we just pray that you'll stay safe and continue to fellowship with one another. This is so important that you reach out to each other and connect with one another. Even if you can't get out and about, use your um, use your technology. I mean, if it's the good old-fashioned telephone, then reach out and, and dial up someone. Uh, email works. Snail mail works. But these days, you know, everybody's got smartphones and social media accounts, you know, got your Facebook and your Twitter and your your Zoom and your Skype and everything else. Just just connect to one another because if you allow yourself to be cut off from the group, then you're painting a target on your back for the adversary to um, try to attack you and to um, you know further isolate you and to confuse you and to wound you and and it'll just it can spiral out of control from there. So um, there there is safety numbers and there's a reason why the um, the Torah is so strong on community, if at all possible. Even if it's a cyber community, like the one that we're engaged in right now, um, reach out and connect with people, um, not just in social media, but um, live streaming and things like that, uh, or uh, live internet studies like the ones I'm conducting right now. Well, uh, if you do make it out to the harvest, um, or if you at least make it to our website, um, take notice of the recent sermons that Pastor Mark is uh, conducting that we upload to our YouTube channel. He's on the sermon um, uh, titled uh, Building the Church One Dinner at a Time. We're going to be talking, I think he's going to be, I haven't listened to this one just yet, I think he's going to be starting, starting in on this idea of how important it is to uh, connect with people and doing it using the opportunity of say a dinner yeah invite some people over um you know get to schmoozing uh that's schmoozing not smooching get to schmoozing and um get to talking about yeshua i mean it's a great opportunity so i think that's what he's going to be uh, talking about there also if you've got access to the internet i'd love to have you visit my Torah teaching website at Tetsay Torah Ministries online, which is the the address is going to be www.tetsaytorah.com. Let me spell it out for you. It's T E T Z E T O R A H dot com. Just click on any of the links that you see on the home screen right there, and you can access all of the various teachings that I make available on my website. That would be great. I also have a YouTube channel of my own that I'd like to um, make. Uh, make you aware of. It's at youtube.com forward slash C, like the word channel, forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. And right now I'm on the video tab so you can see all of the videos that I upload. And I'm fairly busy. I'm uploading something every day. And I uploaded that little notice there. It used to say uh, uploaded weekly, but it is daily. So, um, if you do go to my YouTube channel, do these uh, uh, handful of things for me. Number one, subscribe to my channel. Number, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right, subscribe to my channel. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications so that you know when I'm uploading content, which means you're going to get something daily if you are uh, got your notifications turned on. Number three, as you're watching the videos, hit the little um, thumbs up. Show me, Tell me that you like what um, you're watching there. Uh, number four, um, Leave some comments. Tell me what you found interesting, exciting, uh, challenging. Um, disagree with me if you have to. I'm fine with that as well. Let me know um, your thoughts on the matter. Tell me what type of content you'd like to see on my channel. That would be great too. And then lastly, click the little arrow that shows uh, that allows you to share the content with your friends and family and your other social media um, network uh, people, groups, and things like that. And let's just all share in this big uh 
Bible learning experience together, okay? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Um, here are some of the details so far. Um, let me bump that font up a little bit. Uh, this is episode number 146, and right now the meeting date is July 12th, 2021. That's the USA date, the date for the United States um, for this week. And the meeting time is currently Monday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. However, I'm going to change the time after having a discussion with some of the regular attendees to the group. And we're going to switch the time over to Saturday evenings from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. So it's from Monday, switching over to Saturday, and instead of 7 p.m., will drop back to 4 p.m. a little earlier in the evening. So it'll be a Saturday evening. It'll still be Saturday evening or Saturday late afternoon. So And that'll start this coming um, Monday, in fact. Uh, let me look at my, uh, or this coming uh, Saturday. Let me look at a calendar real quick. Um, so today's the 13th on my side of the world. It'll be the 17th uh, on my side of the world. But I'm sorry, it'll be the 18th on my side of the world. Uh, but it'll be the 17th for you guys. So is that right? Yeah, that's that looks right. So let's let's try that. Let's let's switch over starting the um, July the 17th this coming week. So this will be a while, like a really short week for me, uh, teaching on a on a Tuesday for me, and then turn around and teaching again on a, like a Sunday or so, just like a few a few short days uh, later. So that's the, that's what we're looking at on the schedule. Uh, the hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. Uh, the first 30-minute segment uh, is given over to Romans 14 study called Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. We're in part 62 tonight. We're still working our way through the introduction. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, through the introduction, and we're going to continue working through the conclusions of that part. We might even finish it tonight. We'll see. And then, um, at least not the whole study, but finish that section. And then the segment two part of the study, 30 minutes, is given over to the study known as Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two still. We're going through some review. Yahweh and Yeshua part 79 will continue reviewing uh, Dr. Tuggy's Unitarian perspective, as well as looking at um, um, some information about, oh gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head what is the information that's... Uh, next to that but i think it'll be information that's still review and it's information that's um related to kind of counteracting dr tuggy's perspective are there other ways that we can examine trinity and then we've got a youtube video that we didn't watch last week so we're going to watch it tonight in fact we'll watch it right just a moment in a moment here it is from my short question short answer live series and it's on the topic of should Christians celebrate Passover. We, we're still close enough to the Passover season um, that I think the topic will still have some traction. So hope you guys can stay tuned for all of that. If you're interested in joining us for the live studies, um, get access to Skype. Um, somehow the easiest way is to click on the blue Skype link you can see on my screen right now on my website and that'll take you directly into the Skype study and as I mentioned um, uh, we're gonna change the time there from Mondays to Saturday starting this week uh, if you do access Skype with something other than your desktop or laptop computer you might need an app and you might need a um, Skype account to join us there but hey both of those are free so what's the big deal all right, and that'll do it for all the announcements and everything like that. Let's turn right into the um, video and watch the video that we were going to watch last week, uh, but we'll watch it this week, okay? You guys ready? 
Here we go. The exodus from Egypt is the paradigm of biblical freedom. It's the type and shadow that we as believers need to draw our own personal salvation experience from. When God saves us through the blood of Messiah, the picture is that of being set free from bondage, from slavery to sin, of course, and Egypt is that type and shadow, that biblical picture of slavery, of sin, and of shame, of bondage. Yes, I think we should be keeping Messianic Passover observances. We who name the name of Yeshua and have eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, we know that Yeshua is the spotless lamb. Therefore, we can make the connection between Yeshua as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Should Christians celebrate Passover? The short answer is yes. Yes, Christians should celebrate Passover. I mean, why not, right? After all, we just read the verse. Paul explicitly tells us so in 1 Corinthians 5.8. E-Bible's website allows you to hover over the link, and voila, a little verse pops up and says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we already exegeted and looked at the Greek of that phrase, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now I know some are going to say, but isn't this a... A hypothetical, or isn't this a, a, just an, an allegorical, or isn't this a spiritual? Uh, possibly, possibly, but I don't think probably. I think Paul's referring to the to literal here. Let's keep the feast. There's, I mean, he says, therefore, let us celebrate the festival. And then he goes on to tell us how to celebrate it. So I don't think that we need to necessarily drop in, jump into a, a spiritualizing of the text in order to gain a, a, the, the, the greatest appreciation for what Paul's trying to teach us. But let's keep reading my answer. Whoever says that the New Testament doesn't command Gentile believers to keep parts of the Torah, the law, in my opinion, has obviously missed this verse. Wouldn't you agree? I think, at least from a natural Peshat perspective, from the literal perspective, I've heard this argument before. All the, Torah, the, the New Testament doesn't command Gentile Christians to keep the Torah. It doesn't command us to keep the Sabbath. or, In other words, there's this argument from silence, things like that. Well, I disagree. Granted, granted, the Passover, as traditional Judaism observes it down through the ages today, and has done so for 1,500 years up to this point when Paul's writing this, mainly, for the most part, and this is no secret to Christians, for the most part, they miss the Messiah. We who name the name of Yeshua and have eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, we know that Yeshua is the spotless Lamb. Therefore, we can make the connection between Yeshua as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And thus, this doesn't simply have to become the, what, I, what I think is the default model for our own Messianic Passover observances. Yes, I think we should be keeping Messianic Passover observances. We can borrow, in fact, we can and should borrow traditions from Judaism that honor Hashem, that is God. And if as long as those traditions uphold his laws, then I think it's a safe practice of borrowing from traditional Judaism 
for our Messianic celebrations, our Messianic Passovers, our church observances that seek to return to a Hebraic lifestyle. I think this is a good way of, of forming our, our and, and expressing our connection to national Israel as remnant Israel. Jews and Gentiles who, are, who, are, who name the name of Yeshua I believe identifies remnant Israel, I, a.k.a. the church. And therefore, since uh, the Torah was given to Israel, which would include remnant Israel, the Torah was given to national Israel, which includes remnant Israel, then the, the Passover still is still relevant for us. But we must be careful, I go on to say, to always take our final orders from the Master and from the Apostolic Scriptures, right? This means our Torah observance is going to necessarily differ from traditional Judaic Torah observance. Why? Because we follow the true rabbi named Yeshua, Jesus. When in doubt, side with scripture instead of tradition. Don't just do something because it is Jewish, right? This is a um, an unfortunate uh, uh, occurrence in messianic circles, and it's quite common. Hey, let's just do it because the Jews are doing it. Let's just do it because the rabbis say uh, that this is what the Torah teaches, right? A lot of Jewish tradition isn't isn't accurate either. A lot of Jewish tradition is anti-Christian. A lot of Jewish tradition is 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 anti-messianic. It's 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 um it's counter-missionary and things like that. So you got to very be very careful. Besides, I believe the current Lord's Supper that we participate in is in fact a mini. Passover. If my postulation is true, then, albeit in drastically reduced form, most Christians are already celebrating the Passover. So I, I think that, that the Lord's Supper actually is a mini Passover. Uh, people who celebrate this uh, observance, uh, they're actually celebrating the Passover. They simply don't know they're celebrating the Passover. Um, they're doing it Messianic style. They just don't perhaps don't know it. To be sure, as I say in my answer, Yeshua's Last Supper with his disciples was what I call a fusion of the traditional Passover that Judaism had preserved for 1,500 years up until this point. It was a fusion of that Passover Seder with the institution of the Lord's Supper that he was walking right into and fulfilling right before their very eyes, right? Communion the communion services that we take, I don't think they replace Passover. They didn't replace Passover. Or else Paul's instructions about celebrating the festival that we read about just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, those that those instructions would make nonsense where Paul says, let us keep the feast. So if communion replaced Passover when Paul says, let us keep the feast, then he would have left them with a big question mark. Paul, what festival are you referring to when you tell us to keep the feast? Make sense? Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles are expected to incorporate the Lord's Supper into the Mosaic Passover in order to highlight what our Savior did for us on the cross. So what I have to say is that the exodus from Egypt as such forms, in my opinion, the antecedent theology to understand that each one of us, as believers, both Jew and Gentile, we were set free from our own personal Egypt of sin and shame. The exodus from Egypt is the paradigm of biblical freedom. It's the type and shadow that we as believers need to draw our own personal salvation experience from. When God saves us through the blood of Messiah, the picture is that of being set free from bondage, from slavery to sin, of course, and Egypt is that type and shadow, that biblical picture 
of slavery, of sin, and of shame, of bondage. Since the Lord's Supper celebrates his death, and since Gentiles are grafted into remnant Israel, right, just like I mentioned earlier, they take their place alongside believing Jews in the remnant of Israel. So it's not just remnant Jewish Israel. Get that out of your head. It's remnant Jew and Gentile who are um, known as the church. Because all of this is a spiritual reality, because this is a, a, a reality that we can, we can latch on to, in my opinion, I go on to say in closing, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover, the one that we read about in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover and the Lord's Supper that we read about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we can actually go on to read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. Um, it only makes sense to put these two together as Paul, no doubt, did for his first century communities. Does that make sense to you? And with that, I'll draw my commentary to a close. For those of you who are following my commentaries on YouTube, uh, give it a thumbs up. If you like what you're listening to or like what you're watching, go ahead and hit the thumbs up button and let me know uh, that you like what you're watching. And for those of you who are following along on iTunes, iTunes, yeah, i got to give a, a plug for my iTunes podcasters out there who've been following along with me for all, nearly 20 years. Uh, thank you for, for your comments. Uh, and for those of you who are not subscribed, what are you waiting for? Head on out to iTunes and subscribe to my iTunes podcast, okay? Let's close in prayer. All right, that'll do it for the uh, video, and it's in a different spot this time. Normally, we watch the video at the very end of the teaching, but because of last week's um, timing arrangement, we decided to switch everything around. So I hope you guys enjoyed watching the video uh, right up front this time. Let's turn to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh, my. Let's make that a little bigger. And let's go jump back into where we left off last week. We're reading through... Um, the conclusion section of this particular study, and we're in the middle of a quote from uh, Mark uh, Nanos. For, for some of you, this is a bit um, difficult to, uh, how do we say, uh, go through all the historical uh, portions of a study in order to gain the background and appreciation for any particular Bible book, but I promise you that if you can discipline yourself to actually um, do a little bit of research, you don't have to do weeks and months and years of research to uh, figure out what an author is writing in any particular Bible book, but if you can just allow maybe a Bible commentary or some other resource to give you just, I don't know, maybe an hour's worth of information, I mean, as little as that uh, can help you uh, better plug into uh, how to maybe even understand what an author wrote about you know thousands of years ago and then better not only appreciate that but then better make some um, practical application for your uh, current first century uh, for current 21st century application so we're looking into the background of the book of Romans so that we can better uh, get a handle on a wrap our minds around what was the social situation that was that Paul was facing what particular communities he was working with and um, some of the social religious dynamics and things like that uh, and then from there we can perhaps maybe begin to pray about how can we make some some everyday um connection and to what was written you know 
2,000 plus years ago. We've got an ancient text in front of us, and yet, does it speak to us today? Well, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is making the Bible relevant for us, then the answer must be yes. So let's look at this. Uh, this is my own commentary. We're still looking at the the um, something that drives the under most Bible commentaries uh, understanding of the book of Romans, which is the um, not just who Paul wrote to, but the um, uh, the immediate uh, uh, expulsion of the Jewish people uh, by Emperor Claudius, which took place, as far as we can tell, historians tell us, this took place, I mean, maybe even um, five to ten years immediately before Paul wrote the letter. So he wrote the letter, say, sometime in the mid-50s of his era. The the ex, the um, expulsion took place, some people put it as early as, I think, 49 of that year. Some people put it around 53 or something like that. So we're, we're talking about something that's very, probably still recent uh, on their mind. So let's look at this. This is still Mark Nanos, and he's challenging. He's a Jewish historian. He's not a Messianic Jew, but He's had the impression that there were probably more Jewish people who were allowed to stay than we give credit for. And that would make the Jewish presence in Rome stronger than what we assume it to be from our perspective today. Meaning when Paul wrote the letter, he probably had still some semblance of a Jewish community work with. And um, therefore, the, the Gentile Christians that he was writing to, the brothers in the group, the Gentile Christians who were um, who were the product of the churches that had formed from the Messianic Jewish groups that had spilled over into uh, Gentile Christian uh, groups. From Paul's perspective, Paul wanted Gentiles to stay connected to Jewish people, if at all possible. And if we we have a, a sizable amount of Jewish people there in Rome, well, then this would be something that Paul could make an appeal to. Otherwise, perhaps maybe Paul's telling him, hey, you know what? Break away, break off on your own, form your own separate groups. The Jewish community has been decimated, um, and God is still has them under judgment, so don't worry about them. Don't concern yourself with them. Just um, uh, create your own groups, um, create autonomy, um, you know, stay separated, and go on your merry way. But we know that Paul's unlikely that that's the way that Paul... Uh, wrote. And so Mark Nanos is going to um, postulate this idea that the church groups, the Gentile Christian groups, were still um, connected to a vibrant Jewish community, even though the Jewish community has suffered some damage because of the, um, uh, the expulsion. So let's pick up the commentary there. He says, first, it is unlikely that all or even much of the Jewish community was expelled from Rome by Claudius. So that's one of his initial thesis statements right up front. Um, he's working from the idea. Now, I'm not saying that he's right and that all the rest of history is wrong. Or, uh, you know, like read about the account in the book of Acts where it talks about the Jews being expelled. We're going to make reference to that in a moment. I'm not saying that the expulsion didn't take place. He, and he's not questioning it either. He's simply asking... Is there a possibility that it is, it's maybe um, not as widespread as we might assume it to have been? And we're looking at some of the logical practicalities of could it have been as widespread as we've been taught? And if it wasn't, what are the implications for Paul's communities and thus for our own 21st century understanding of Paul's letter? He continues, Suetonius' report, remember Suetonius is another um, historian of Paul's day, that would have made some reference to what's going on and given us some details. Suetonius' report can be understood to indicate an expulsion pertaining 
only to those Jews who were involved in a disturbance in direct conflict with the statement in Acts 18.3 that all the Jews were expelled. So we know um, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that all the Jews were expelled. And it seems like it's a contradiction, but it's that's only on the surface. Luke says all the Jews were expelled, but then Suetonius may have only been trying to explain that it was a a certain sect of Jews or a certain certain group of rebel rousing troublemaking Jews that were expelled. How can we harmonize these two accounts? I know most people are going to say, well, obviously that we, let's side with the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit sanctioned that. We don't we can't say the same for Suetonius, right? He's not holy writ, but did. Luke have to mean that all the Jews in Rome, or did he simply mean all the Jews of that certain area, or all the Jews of that particular faction, or of that particular um, occurrence? I mean, we have to put it in context. It could work out that way, right? That's the possibilities that we're examining. Uh, Nanos continues that neither Jewish authors such as Josephus and Philo, nor Roman historians such as uh, Tacitus reported the event suggests uh, that uh, there there was more there was at most a limited action so that's how we can perhaps understand what Luke wrote about when he says all the Jews the larger context is perhaps he meant all the Jews of that faction or all the Jews that were involved in the uh, troublemaking incident or maybe all the Jews of a certain region or something like that we don't have to since Luke doesn't explicitly say all the Jews of Rome then um, we can uh, safely understand that that's possibly what he is uh, referring to. Um, I'll go back and look up that verse explicitly in a moment. I it didn't have. I don't think I have it in my uh, commentary. Uh, the Acts 15 verse. Let me just double check. Yeah, I don't see that I've got it linked here, so that I could um, pull it up and and have you guys look at it. So let's just keep looking at this. Nanos continues. This fact that you know, the, the, as far as to how many Jews were expelled. This fact is all the more suggestive when we're talking about it perhaps maybe being a limited number. It's all the more suggestive when it is noted that, and keep listening, all right? Listen very carefully. This isn't one historian's perspective. This, is, of course, is not the end-all, be-all uh, historical account, right? I'm not trying to, ever, to suggest to everyone out there, Mark Nanos has it right and everybody else has it wrong. <laughs> no. What I'm trying to say is that when you're trying to do an investigative um, uh and when you're trying to do your own personal investigation of any particular historical event that we don't have all the details for, it's better to take the scientific approach where you get as much information on, on the table for examination as possible so that you can corroborate details and try to weed out which part is fact and which part is perhaps maybe just hearsay or rumor or something like that. Okay, let's keep going. So the fact that Luke doesn't explicitly say that it's all the Jews in Rome is all the more, uh, and, and that it could, in fact, be maybe just a smaller group of Jews. It's all the more suggestive when it's noted that citizens, we're talking about Roman citizens, which at least a number of Jews in Rome were, they were Roman citizens, they could not be expelled without due process. And either way, if they were expelled, it would have constituted significant news to report. So, that's what's going on. That's that's part of what drives uh, Nanos's um, sus suspicion about the suggestion that oh, you know, uh, Claudius said everybody's out. Well, then that means everybody has to get out. Well, was he above the law? 
as a Roman emperor? Could he have simply just expelled hundreds of thousands of Roman citizens without any sort of due process, without any sort of uh, legal pushback from anyone in that day? Um, and if he did, if he just mowed over the law, the court system said, you know, well, hey, I'm the emperor. My law, it's my way or the highway, right? Everybody's out that's Jewish. You know, get out all 50,000, 200,000 to 500,000 Jews. Get out of Rome. I don't care if you're Roman citizens. I don't care if, you're, if you've got a legal connection to our city. I don't care if you're going to protest. I don't care if you're going to get your lawyers to try and step in and help you out. Get out, get out, get out. All right. If that took place... Shouldn't the other historians have reported that? Shouldn't Josephus have said something about that? Or Philo or someone like that? That's kind of the assumption that we're kind of working from. We have, um, we just have to work with what we've got, the, the scant amount of history that's left for us. Let's keep reading. Indeed, um, it would have supported Tacitus's negative description to note that even when citizens, Jews and converts were a threat to Roman political order. We can read about that in Tacitus' account, or um, might have been Josephus' account there. Moreover, Decasius, who's another historian, writes specifically that Claudius did not expel the Jews of Rome, but only restricted their meetings, and the rationale he supplies us is that there were simply too many Jews to do so without creating a crisis in that particular part of Rome. So consider this. The Jews of that day formed a sizable amount of Roman citizens. If 200,000 to 500,000 Jews suddenly picked up their businesses and left town, don't you think that would have a negative impact on the surrounding or the surviving or the remaining um, uh, communities? Yeah, there would be an absence of businesses, an absence of, of communal um, connection, um, you know, if they were suddenly uh, uh, forced out. So we've, we've got to consider this when we, when we read about the uh, description in the book of Acts, and we hear um, people say, well, yeah, all the Jews got kicked out. Well, that's just too bad. Um, really? Really? If you stop and think about some of the um, uh, uh, details that would have to be in place if they really did get kicked out. <clears throat> Let's keep reading uh, Nanos here. If perhaps Dio, the other uh, Roman historian there, I think he was a Christian as well, if he was referring to a different incident in the uh, reign of Claudius, as some suggest, right, maybe there was um, more than one event that the historian was reporting, then maybe he skipped over this cataclysmic incident when Jews were expelled, making the contract all the more suspect. We're talking about the um, possibility or the probability or whatnot of how to understand the the um, historical account of the expulsion and whether or not um, we as today's uh, modern 21st century Bible students can um, gain stand to gain from perhaps maybe um, allowing that maybe enough Jewish people were still around for Paul to assume that the Gentile Christians should stay connected to those Jewish communities and uh, um, work with one another? Or was Paul um, suggesting something that would be later categorized as some form of supersessionism, replacement theology, where the church has overtaken Israel's place in the covenants, God's no longer concerning himself with the Jewish people, and Paul wants the Gentile Christians to form their uh, religious theology and their social, um, communal, 
uh, policies uh, over and against and away from the Judaisms. That's really the, um, the, the details that we're entertaining here. Let's conclude this section. Nano says that the author of Acts can also observe that the Jewish leaders in Rome have little first-hand knowledge of the Christ followers, but understand this to be a sect of Judaism that is spoken against elsewhere. Recall Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 22. Go back and read that on your own. This particular uh, detail of the story suggests that although the writer Luke me also mentions the wholesale expulsion, right? It's the same writer. Luke does not link this to a disturbance over Christ or with fellow Christ followers. And in fact, he does not state why the Jews had been expelled, including Aquila and Priscilla, right? They were Paul's um, fellow Messianic Jewish uh, teachers there in Rome. And we already talked about the fact that if the Jews were expelled, the Messianic Jews would have, expelled, would have also been expelled. And there's a strong possibility, even a probability, that many Christians would have been swept up along with the expulsion. Not because Rome was trying to wipe out just Gentile Christians at this point in time, but because of the well-known fact, even by today's uh, um, uh, Christian standards, it's well-known fact that first century Gentile Christianity in Paul's day was essentially a sect of Judaism. It was a, it was a, um, a they were uh, um, underneath the, uh, the religious um, identifications of Judaism. Even if they didn't call themselves Judaism, they were, you know, they've been referred to as either Christians or followers after the way or Nazarenes, <clears throat> things like that, other titles. Um, some may have used the term uh, some form of Judaism, depending on which uh, you know denomination of Christianity uh, at in Paul's day that you were attached to. But nevertheless, for Rome to be able to easily identify Gentile Christians as over and against um, religious Jews of that day, I don't think would have been an easy task. Um, we're going to find out that it wasn't until after the destruction of the temple and moving closer into some of the um, uh, J later Jewish revolts then that Rome was able to finally be able to distinguish and make um, separations between the Christian groups and the religion and the Jewish groups and begin to persecute the Jewish groups all the more. Eventually they would persecute the Christians as well until they joined them, right? Until Constantine became a, a Christian himself. But that's for later study. A different study. Let's keep reading Mark Nanos. He says, Second, it's unlikely that the expulsion mentioned was precipitated by disputes about Jesus Christ, right? Keep in mind that there were enough heated debates in the synagogue over Yeshua that didn't always spill out over into Roman communities that would require, say, uh, Caesar to step in and uh, silence the... Um, uh, the crowd. Um, now, there are some incidents in the book of Acts that we can read about that caught the attention of the um, synagogue authorities, and uh, even the Sanhedrin had to step in some, from time to time, the synagogue authorities, people like that, and imprison some of the apostles, and, um, you know, try to uh, calm, make, make, make peace, and things like that. But we're talking about a dispute over who Yeshua is that was supposedly big enough um, to cause the Jews to have to be kicked out. Suetonius 
elsewhere, uh, remember he's a first century historian, he discusses the Christiani under Nero rather than the, than the Christiani under, and that's from his account in Nero. Notice the difference in the spellings there. Christiani, Christiani. That's not a typo in my uh, commentary. That's actually um, the possibility, of the, simpler, the similarity in names over perhaps the topic of the um, disputes themselves that led to the expulsion. The Christiani and the Christiani may have simply been two different yet similar sounding issues that were taking place in that day. And this was following um, uh, the other historian Tacitus who already knew of the Christiani. So um, we just have to kind of work with what we've got historically. Um, maybe there were two separate incidents that we're, we're discussing here. Third, Nano says, it is curious to suppose that Romans would have expelled Jews, perhaps citizens, at least those with long-standing tradition, which were generally respected in the communities, but not also expelled the non-Jews, meaning in their midst, remember the Christians, perhaps many not-citizens, even slaves, who could not similarly appeal to previous latitude based on observing ancient traditions. So, again, we're just examining the possibilities of the expulsion in the first century. We've got Roman citizens. They're Jews, but they're Roman citizens. Supposedly, they get kicked out, but what about the non-Jews? We know there were lots of non-Jews meeting with Jews in the synagogues and in the assemblies and the church groups. We know this because we have the Bible's account. Read through the book of Acts. We know that Jews and Gentiles were meeting together. It was no secret. And they weren't doing it in secret. They weren't hiding anything from Rome. And yet, for supposedly for many, many years, Rome didn't have any problem with Jews and non-Jews meeting together. They didn't have a problem with the proselyte program in the first century. Gentiles uh, converting to Judaism and things like that. And yet suddenly, if all of these Jewish Roman citizens were expelled, don't you think that some of those non-Jewish yet Roman citizens or maybe um, slaves or the plebs, the plebs, you know, you've heard uh, historical accounts of some of the lower class Roman peoples or um, uh, barbarians or peoples that were joining in uh, and joining Christianity at the time. Um, don't you think some of them who, you know, they even had less of a um, an appeal option in the, you know they didn't have any legal standing maybe they couldn't afford it maybe they their 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 social class just didn't allow it for it um, don't you think they would have been swept away without any without even the blink of an eye I mean, I mean they were practicing the religion of Judaism right they were God fearers which was part and parcel with Judaism it resembled Judaism it it was basically the same thing without uh, converting so we've got to uh, look at these details and consider them as we're talking about topics like this. Let's keep reading through Nanos. I think we'll be able to finish the quote tonight. Nanos says, would they, speaking about these lower um, social uh, groups, not in other words, um, the higher up the social chain you went, the more uh, affordability it was uh, given you to perhaps make maybe an appeal or to fight against any type of expulsion or anything like that. But the lower on down the rung you went, you fell, then um, there was not much you could do. Would these people groups be left in Rome? Um, talking about the non-Jews. Would they be left in Rome to carry on meetings involving the name Christ? 
if, watch this, if already groups associated with that name had provoked significant disturbances of the peace to have led to the expulsion of the Jewish community in the first place. I think this is a powerful, uh, logical um uh, option that we're looking at here. So follow along. If you weren't if you weren't making sense of what Nanos just says, let me see if I can break this part down for you because this is really strong. So supposedly, according to uh, the common 21st century understanding of the expulsion uh, from Rome and the and how it impacted Paul's communities, and this is mainly by mainstream Christian authors that um, have this particular perspective. Christians by today's standards who don't feel any need to make any connection to current Jewish uh, Judaisms or religions. Uh, this is mainstream Christianity that um, without knowing it um, kind of endorses uh, the kind of replacement theology, dispensational, supersessionism perspective where the Torah is out, the New Testament's in, the Old Testament's out, Israel's out, the Jewish people have been replaced. Now that's kind of the harsh version of it, but even still, when you have Gentile Christians today who just are disinterested in in uh, returning to any sort of Jewish lifestyle or uh, studying Israel's Torah or anything like that just because they feel that the Christianities have already been established as the new people group of God or um, you know at least for now, the people of God, if you're a dispensationalist, consider this. Let's suppose in the first century that um, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, was able to expel all of the Jews from Rome. Let's just run with that for a moment. Let's suppose he got them all out. Let's say, you know, by most uh, uh, estimates, anywhere from 200,000 to 500,000. Consider this. I got a lot of Jewish people who are supposedly expelled from Rome. Now, according to most Christian accounts today, I'm not saying all, but a good number. The supposed um, reason for the expulsion had something to do with uh, supposedly the Messianic Jews were arguing with the non-Messianic Jews about the re, uh, the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah, right? So we had this heated debate of, of who Jesus was in the synagogues between Jews who were national Jews and Jews who were Messianic Jews, right? So Christian Jews. And so this spilled out over into the communities, big enough to cause uh, Rome to take notice. And then Rome said, that's it. Get out. You guys are talking about this Christiani or Christiani fellow or whatever, um, or concept. Um, get out and take your discussion with you. Just get out of Rome. You know, don't cause us any problems anymore, right? Get out. So let's suppose that that's what took place. All of the Jews get kicked out. And why did they get kicked out? What sparked the, the um, expulsion? It was because of their discussions about this Christiani or Christiani. Notice I'm playing with the, the, the two different uh, spellings of the name. So if that's the case, who was left behind? The Christian Gentiles. And what are they going to keep doing? They're going to keep talking about Christ and they're going to be identified as Christians. They're not identified as pagans. They're not identified as Jews anymore. They're not identified as as, as proselytes, right? Because all of that program got kicked out. So what Mark Nanos is challenging is with the idea is that supposedly under this, <laughs> this um, story that we think about today, that supposedly the Christian Gentiles were allowed to stay behind and have their discussions about the very person that got the Jews kicked out, but the Christians aren't going to have any problem talking about the same fellow? Don't you think Rome? You think Rome just accepted this Christian fellow, but they, they had a problem with Jews talking about Christ, but they didn't have a problem with Gentiles talking about Christ? Notice the 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 the, the 
odd um, uh, inconsistencies if that's really the case. So that's really all we're looking at. I mean, that's that's a powerful argument. I'm not saying it doesn't have any pushbacks and doesn't bring with it its own set of questions, but it does add some more discussion to the table as we're looking at the possibilities of what really took place in that day. So let's conclude this particular part of my study with this quote from uh, Nando's. Fourth, and most importantly, Paul's approach, right? Because really, at the end of the day, we as Christians are really concerned most about what the Bible says. So we're going to take up most of our authority, our final authority, from what history we have left for us and preserved for us in the Bible. Paul's approach to the non-Jews and Romans, the Christians, is not what one might expect if they were, in fact, in positions of power and using that power to exclude or discriminate against Jewish Christ-following brothers and sisters within their small groups. Notice, when Paul wrote his letters, be careful when you're reading those letters to try to notice who the recipients of his letters are, catch the tone of his letters, the rhetoric of his letters, the um, intended um, instructions to his letters, and the rebuke, if any. And so when you're reading particularly through the book of Romans, when you start to slow down in the chapters of 9 through 11, this is just my suggestion, you're going to notice how Paul zeroes in on Israel, national Israel, stumbling, blinded Israel, and how the Gentile Christians have a responsibility to do their part in salvation history as regards, number one, they, the Gentile Christians, were grafted from their position into a place within God's family, Abraham's family, and number two, they were now in a place where they, the Gentile Christians, had the gospel that they needed to share with stumbling Israel. So this is really one of the one of the foundational points that we should kind of return to over and over again. Would Paul have wanted the Gentile Christians to form their own separate groups to be completely locally autonomous, to have a mindset that um, kind of fed into the replacement theology not concept, the dispensational displaced uh, supersessionism idea? Would Paul have endorsed that idea? Is that what he was instructing the um, uh, the Gentile Christians of Rome? I say to that to the, the I say the question the answers to those questions. I say no. I don't think that's what he was teaching. All right, and so in conclusion. One of some of my commentary is, so much for the boring quote-unquote his- history lesson for today. Let us now turn to a bullet point listing of the additional topics of our study. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Uh, we'll, we'll just remind ourselves again once more of the scope and style of the study. We'll look at all the bullet points. And then we're actually ready to start uh, looking at uh, this bullet point, which reads... What exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? So we're going to really start looking at this discussion on um, the topic that's related to, I think, the main topic in the section of Romans 14, which is food, food and table fellowship and things like that. But that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast, Fast, and Food. Oh, my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And... Um, Remember, last week we looked at uh, uh, 
we looked at some of the technicalities of Dr. Dale Tuggy's um, Unitarianism. And we're not saying that Dr. Tuggy is the final authority on Unitarianism, but he is one of the more vocal and well-known and well-respected Unitarians. So there was this recent public YouTube debate, recent by within the last, say, five years, I think, if I'm correct. And here's where we left off last week. What I say in my commentary is that here's what Dr. Tuggy, the Unitarian, stated in regards to his position on um, how he understands the God of the Bible. Remember, we're talking about the Trinitarian position versus the Unitarian position. And in case you're unfamiliar with those terminology, in, in, in general, generic terms, Unitarian theology believes that God is a single being uh, and is not broken up into three persons, more or less. He's only one, um, he has only one identity. Uh, God is the Father, the Father is God, and um, perhaps... He turned into Jesus. Uh, if you're a oneness Pentecostal and you believe that that the God of the Bible is actually Jesus, but wore the label Father and wore the label Spirit at different times, it's a kind of a form of modalism. But we're simply talking about Unitarianism. One God, one identity. One, in other words, one person, if we want to add that label. That's Unitarianism in a nutshell. In contrast, there are forms of Trinitarianism, and in all fairness, Dr. Tuggy recognizes that there are different versions of Trinitarian theology, and no one of them agrees with the other one in all points, but something that many Trinitarian theories do hold in common is that God has some sort of three-part breakdown, whether it's three gods, or three modes, or three... Um, uh, manifestations of power or three persons. Uh, that's what the word trinity or, or tri-unity uh, refers to. So that's the distinction. In, in, in the Unitarian mindset, there's only one, and in the Trinity mindset, there's at least three fill-in-the-blank. All right, so that's what we're working from. Here's what Dr. Tuggy has to say. This is what he said in his YouTube video. He said, My thesis is that the God of the Bible is not the Trinity because the God of the Bible is the Father alone. The New Testament is just as monotheistic as the Old Testament. But it also tells us who this one God is. And contrary to Catholic traditions, in the New Testament, the one God is not the Trinity. In the New Testament, this one God is the one Jesus referred to as, quote, our Father in Heaven, end quote. The one Paul calls, quote, God the Father, end quote. So are you following along with Dr. Tuggy's opening statements here? He's trying to tell everyone, the audience, Dr. Brown and the, and the moderates, what his understanding of the God of the Bible is. He continues, in the New Testament... The one God just is the Father, and the Father just is the one God. They are one and the same. So Tuggy is really big on identity. Remember, he's not just a, another preacher. He's not just your average Christian. He's an analytic theologian. It's almost like he thinks in terms of mathematics. Extremely logical and extremely um, 
methodical in the way that he um, examines any particular uh, topic. And uh, I really respect that perspective, although I think it's unfortunate that in my understanding of who the God of the Bible is, this blinds Dr. Tuggy to the reality that the Bible is actually demonstrating a very complex God who cannot simply be described the way the Unitarians describe him. But nevertheless, this is what Dr. Tuggy holds to, and, and not just Dr. Tuggy, many Unitarians and many monotheistic uh, Oneness Pentecostals, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Iglesia Ni Cristo, um, uh, Mormons, uh, many Muslims, um, many other um, quasi-Christian groups, and, and things like that hold to this particular perspective that God simply is one. He just is the one God. The father of the Bible is just the one God. There isn't any Trinitarian nonsense going on. That's their perspective. Uh, Tuggy continues, this is the defining thesis of Unitarian Christian theology, and it is contradicted by any Trinitarian theology. All right, he's pretty strong in his position. Let's continue to see what he thinks. A Trinitarian, by contrast, thinks that the one God is the tripersonal God. Notice, one God, tripersonal. So that is one of the defining factors of the version of Trinitarianism that Dr. Tuggy is describing. Keep in mind, I incorrectly um, uh, ascribed uh, to the notion that Dr. Tuggy rejects all forms of Trinitarian theology based on the uh, logical incoherencies of their uh, theories. And that's not really what Dr. Tuggy's trying to convey. He's, as, as I understand it, since he and I have begun to continue to dialogue with one another, I don't think he wrote back to me just yet. I haven't seen it. But I went back and listened to the uh, some of his podcasts again uh, this week in preparation for this study tonight. And I went back and watched the the entire video. It's like two and a half hours long with him and him and Dr. Brown. I watched it over again. And this time I paid careful attention to what Dr. Tuggy is really saying about Trinity. And something that kind of stood out to me is that Dr. Tuggy actually says that if you as a Christian embrace Trinity, or one of the forms of Trinitarian doctrine, then good for you. If that's how you identify and relate to God and to Jesus as your Messiah, then that's good and well for you. Um, but as a Unitarian Christian, he does not embrace any of the number of tr different types of Trinity theories that are on the table for examination. And that's an important fact that I kind of glossed over when I um, mentioned him in my uh, video that was in question from last week. Dr. Tuggy is not trying to say that all Trinitarian theories are incoherent. Some are more uh scrambled than others. Some are a little more difficult and jumbled together than others. Some are just a, some of them actually have a little bit more um, credibility to them, and some of them might even be pretty close to being convincing. So he's really trying to say that um, the types of Trinitarian theories that are out there that are weak, um, Christians probably shouldn't embrace those. But the ones that are pretty strong, Dr. Tuggy, as a Unitarian, if I understood what he said in YouTube video, YouTube uh, um, uh, debate, he said, hey, if that's the, the, the type of Trinity you want, uh, theory that you want to embrace, go for it. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. So, yeah, that's what he said. Uh, if you think I misunderstood him, uh, go ahead and watch the YouTube video yourself. I think I'll put a link to it in the description below, and you can tell me if I got it wrong. He continues, but no one thinks that the Father is tripersonal. Even Trinitarians don't think that the Father is tripersonal, right? Remember this little badge that you've seen? I'm going to flash one on the screen here in post-production. God 
uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. It's important that when we're talking about this this Trinity topic that we distinction that we make a distinction as Trinitarians that the Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. So that's what Tuggy's trying to highlight. The Father is no one thinks that the Father is tripersonal. When it comes to the persons of the Trinity, we don't um, carry their their personhood over and, and overlay it and overlap it with the other person. No one said well at least most Trinitarians don't. I think some oneness Pentecostals under a form of modalism definitely do think of God as some sort of tripersonal um, carryover where the Son is the Father, the Father is the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Father, the Holy Spirit is the Son. And at some point in time, Jesus just is God. And when he chooses to be the Father, then he's the Father. And when he chooses to be the Holy Spirit, he's the Spirit. Something to that effect. We'll look at that a little bit later. But Tuggy's trying to say that most Trinitarians don't think that the Father is tripersonal. He says, the Trinitarian, the Trinitarian says, the one God is the Trinity, and so the Father gets demoted to being, in some sense, one-third of God, whether a part of God, a personality of God, a mode of God, or a person within God. Either way, in Tuggy's mind, Trinity breaks God down unnecessarily. It splits him into kind of this schizophrenic um, being where he has kind of multiple personality disorder if indeed he's one self when he's the father, but he's a different self when he's Jesus or something like that. He goes on to say, the Trinitarian's theory requires that the one God is not numerically the same as the father, right? We understand that. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not the Father. We agree with Tuggy there. But rather, he must distinguish the one God, the tripersonal God, from the Father. But here, fourth century speculations clash with plain New Testament teaching. This is according to Dr. Tuggy, right? He thinks that the God of the Bible that the Trinitarians describe clashes with what the New Testament teaches. And um, if you watch the video, the debate, he goes on to uh, over and over again show how Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers constantly referred to God as the Father, even Jesus calling him my Father or the Father of Jesus or something like that. And so um, that's the challenge he's presenting to us Trinitarians. He concludes, and then this is my own commentary, Tuggy, I say, identifies Yeshua not as very God in flesh, but merely as a unique man, a created being, viz. Jesus is reduced to a creature who was deified um, uh, deified by God the Father, making him worthy of being called God, quote-unquote, in special contexts, and worthy of human worship because God the Father commands it to be so. So you're understanding the basic uh, Unitarian position that I believe Dr. Tuggy is um, uh, appealing to. He believes that Jesus is worthy of worship. This is a common argument that Trinitarians would make against your average Unitarian. In other words, how can Jesus be worthy of worship unless he's God? Dr. Tuggy's form of Unitarianism would answer in this way. Well, Jesus is not God 
in the fullest sense of the identity, but because God exalted him and deified him and bestowed glory and majesty upon him, Jesus, therefore, is worthy of worship and must, in fact, be worshipped in special contexts as God. God, in a sense of, of, of endowed with parts of the deity of God, enough of, enough of that deity that he could be worshipped as God in the special contexts. But nevertheless, um, Jesus is still a, a creature that was created by God at some point in time in history. And therefore, um, he's worthy of worship because God says it so. And if you respect God, then you must respect what God says is true of his son. Something to that effect. So, that's basically what we're looking at. As we continue looking at this particular study, and we drop down a little bit further into this review, we have this appeal to mystery that I made in my um, commentary. And this is probably one of the strongest appeals that most Christians would make, an appeal to mystery. And so I want to start into this. We're not going to finish this tonight, but I want to um, uh, just take a bite out of it, and then we'll um, uh, go on further into the study. Uh, here's what I have to say in my own commentary. Dr. James Anderson of the School of Divinity of Edinburgh favors the approach of disambiguating the Trinity using nomenclature that is referred to by theologians as Mysterian. And you may have never heard the term Mysterian before, but I'm certain you're going to identify with much of it as I explain it to you. Anderson suggests that the mystery, quote-unquote, bound up in the language of the Bible in regards to understanding God's relationship to his son Jesus, may in fact be qualified and expressed as, and he has this term, macru, the letters M-A-C-R-U-E, which I say in my commentary is a proprietary term that I believe Anderson himself coined. So I think he owns this term. I'm pretty sure he made it up. We're going to examine the biblical possibilities of this actual biblical term mystery a bit further down into my own commentary. But for now, I say, um, just for now, just to take a bite of it, let's allow Dr. Anderson to explain this MACRU acronym in his own words. And we're not going to look at it tonight. We'll save this for next week. Or if you're a good Berean student, you can go ahead and go to my commentary at tatsatora.com under Exploring the Shema and read the rest of the commentary for yourself. If you want to jump ahead, I'm fine with that. But for now, that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy. Exodus chapter 3, three short verses, verses 13 through 15. This is one of my favorite passages, and I'm picking verses that I just want to read, not particularly any um, theological tie-in to any part of the study. God and Moses are having this discussion about sending Moses into the... In, uh, uh, um, before the Pharaoh, sending him uh, into the cor Pharaoh's courts and before him to negotiate. Really, it's not a negotiation. God's going to have his way, but you understand what I'm saying here. Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And um, before all that happens, though, Moses has to go to the people and explain God's plans and how that God's going to rescue them from Egypt and bring them out of Egypt and bring them into the uh, promised land or bring them uh, to a place where God can uh, uh, bless them and things like that, right? You guys know the story. You've read it or you've watched the movies or the dramas or the, uh, the, uh, the uh, animations. Or I just watched recently Exodus of gods of kings and of gods and kings. I think with with um, Christian Bale, 
uh, playing the part of Moses. Wow, that was a really good uh, Hollywood rendition of the story. Nevertheless, this is the this is kind of what's going on. So Moses is gonna go before Pharaoh, and he's gotta go before the people. But before he does that, he has these, a few questions to God, like, um, "Who should I tell him is sending me?" Right? Who is the God that's going before me? And this is the account where God actually tells Moses his name. But it's really uh, particular, peculiar how it comes about. So we'll look at this um, uh, this week and next week. I'm going to read only the English this week, and next week we'll read only the Hebrew. So Exodus 3.13, starting right there where you see on my screen. Um, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then verse uh, 15, God also said to Moses, scroll up there, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We're going to look at the um, Hebrew of that next week. It's very peculiar what God actually says to Moses about I am who I am, and then um, say to the people, you know, the Lord God, you know, what is it about the name of God that can be gleaned from this particular passage? Uh, does it bear relevance for us today? Um, does this mean that we should be using God's name exclusively? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, about that next week, but that'll do it for the liturgy from the Old Testament or the Torah section. Let's turn to Romans 14 and begin to read this through again. We've read this in the past, and this is a, a text we're going to turn to over and over again since we're studying it in our Roman study. We're just going to read the first three verses again tonight. Um, as we start to read down through this passage, I'll read the English, I'll read the Greek next week. Paul says in Romans 14.1, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're going to make this discussion over and over again. Who are the weak in faith, and why does it bear relevance for Paul, and why should it bear relevance for us in our 21st century discussions. In verse 2, Paul says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And in verse 3, he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. And since we already watched the uh, YouTube video at the beginning of our study, let's simply close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the students. I thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts. I know, Father, that your words are reliable. They're true. They're trustworthy. They can be counted on. We know that you are a God who keeps his promises. You keep your covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love you and keep your commandments. May we be that people. Father, we are the ones who are inconsistent. We are the ones who have our ups and downs. We have our holdups, our hangups, our, our headaches, our heartaches, our heartbreaks. Lord, we are the ones who are, are broken and in need of repair. Send your Messiah into our hearts to heal the damage, to heal us, to, to make us whole, to, to strengthen our, our, our feeble hands, our broken legs, our, our, our broken hearts, our, 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 um, our confused minds. Help us to be a people strengthened by your Spirit, uh, bearing the name of Messiah proudly, um, taking the good news, the gospel, to people around us who don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. Give us holy boldness. Give us uh, divine opportunities to share our testimony and our witness for, with people. 
carry us along through these difficult pandemic times. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. Keep us strengthened. Keep us together. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.